Have you ever heard a musical artist described as having great chops? What does that mean? Well, the term chops is slang in the music business that refers to an artist that has developed great skills over time, whether they are a musician, composer, producer, or other titles associated with the music business. This is Scott Grimaldi, your host of Got Chops. Join me as I interview one musical artist per episode that I've had the pleasure of either performing, recording, or work with in my career. Plus, I'll be interviewing artists I've always wanted to speak with. We'll discover how each artist developed their chops, listen to their stories, and much more. This is Got Chops. The track playing behind me is from a new studio album by the Hotel Excelsior Orchestra, playing popular music from the 1920s. Today's guest artist is the producer, arranger, bass player, and vocalist on this very special recording project that I was also asked to play clarinet and soprano saxophone on. My guest is a musician that began playing professionally at the age of 14 attended the Manhattan School of Music as a composition major, and then quickly became a sought-after arranger, composer, and bass player in the New York, New Jersey metropolitan area. In the years that followed, this gentleman became a studio staff bass player for Grammy Award-winning record producer Tony Camillo. Some of the artists that he has recorded with include Gladys Knight and the Pips, Tommy James, The Fifth Dimension, and Frida Payne. As an arranger, he has penned over 200 published works and has been commissioned to write pieces in many different styles, including big band, full orchestra with chorus, string ensemble, and concert band. Over the years, I've had the good fortune of playing with this outstanding musician on various recording sessions, stage shows, pit orchestras, and club dates. This multifaceted artist definitely got chops. Please welcome my good friend, John Hosley. Hi, John. How are you? Pretty, pretty good. <laughs> you sound like uh, one of my idols, uh, Larry David. Pretty, <laughs> pretty, pretty good. You have to say it three times. Oh, okay. It's like penny, penny, penny. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay. Uh, let me fill my listeners in on who uh, my friend John Hosley is. John and I go way back to the 1980s. Um, if someone were to ask me about John Hosley, the first thing that comes to mind is he's a great studio bass player. And we're going to talk about the artist and the producers that he's worked for and the collaboration that John and I have throughout the years in the studio, on stage, club dates, all kinds of stuff. So, John, thanks so much for doing this interview. I really appreciate it. Sure. What does the music slang got chops mean to you? Well, to me, there's two kinds of chops. There's technical proficiency and groove. And I'm kind of in the latter. Uh, my technical prowess is pretty lame, I think. Uh, but I got a good groove. So uh, one time I was playing 
electric bass in a concert band situation. The drummer leaned over to me and he goes, your whole notes even have a groove. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I go with the groove and I, I have, I got chops on the groove end, but not so much on the technical end. Well, um, I'm going to disagree in order to, <laughs> seriously. I mean, I've seen you perform many times and perform with you. Um, and that person that said that was dead on in order to have a groove on a whole note, you have to have technical proficiency, and you do. Uh, I'm surprised that you would say that about yourself, but you're very humble, and you're just a monster musician. <laughs> Did you grow up in a, a musical household? Absolutely not. My mother and father didn't know the first thing about music, but one of the things that they liked to do was listen to music. And my father was an electronics tinkerer. So he built one of the first stereo systems back in the fifties, you know, the old Heath kit. Oh, no uh, kidding. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, he'd be out at the kitchen table, putting together these systems and then, you know, he had to have something to play on them. So he'd go out and buy, you know, <laughs> he'd go and buy those subscription records at the Acme, you know, if you buy $15 worth of meat, you got uh, a Beethoven Sonata on a record. Wow. Um, so we do that. And also they had a, an FM. Now, FM back in the late 50s was really lame. Uh, I mean, there were a few stations and they weren't playing much of a selection of anything. But he found the stations he liked. My mother liked certain stations. So I had a, I had a big um, knowledge of all kinds of music, uh, but they were not. It's instrumental in uh, providing me any kind of musical genes whatsoever. Where did you grow up? What town? What state? I think New Jersey, right? Yeah, uh, South Plainfield. I uh, I guess I was two and a half years old when I moved to South Plainfield, and that's where I grew up, South Plainfield school system. Okay. I know that your first instrument was the tuba. So what got you yeah. interested in the tuba, and how did this lead to playing the electric and upright bass? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, my mother and father, like I said, were not musically inclined. And one day I went to school and they said uh, they were starting up students on band instruments. So I brought home the papers and told my mother I want to play the saxophone. And she said, no, you'll just quit. And then I'll be stuck for the rental fees. <laughs> and so I was <laughs> crestfallen. Go back to school. Uh, my teacher at that time was Chris Peterson. And the uh, I said, I can't, I can't play anything because my parents won't pay for the rental. And he goes, well, that's perfect because we have a school tuba and it's free. Wow. So yeah, I came home. The only thing I had to buy was the mouthpiece. The tuba was always there at school. And I never even had an instrument in the house until I actually graduated high school. I just played on the school horns. Um, but yeah, it was, that's, that's why I started tuba because it was free. It was a school instrument. That's interesting. And uh, just to piggyback on what John just mentioned, he mentioned a, a fellow by the name of Chris Peterson. Uh, we both know Chris very well. Uh, Chris conducts uh, one of the uh, concert bands in central New Jersey. And funny enough, he was one of my first woodwind private teachers oh. when I was a kid. Uh, but, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, but I know you, you knew him a, a lot longer and way before I met him. Yeah, I was 10, I think, when I first met Chris. Wow. What age did you begin to study the tuba, 
and maybe the base and composition privately from whom, and were they all at the same time? Um, I started the tuba at 10, and at 11, I started um, private studies with a guy named Joe Sackle, who was in Scotch Plains. He was a tuba player, very good tuba player. Um, and I studied with him for a number of years on tuba, and you know, the, to help you get into region band and state band and all that stuff. Um, but again, I was hampered by the fact that I didn't have a horn at home. The only thing I could do was practice at school, which I really didn't want to do. But <laughs> the only way that Chris Peterson could get me to practice was to give me detention for an entire year. And I got, <laughs> That's great. Yeah, every, every year I'd walk in the first day of school and he'd say, you've got detention for the rest of the year. And that's how I practiced after school. Well, the other thing that you got from him is his sense of humor. Because as well, oh, yeah. you know, he had a very dry sense of humor. He's still with us, and he is still funny as heck. <laughs> yeah, you bet. After uh, Joe Sackle, uh, much later on, actually, I studied with Don Butterfield. I, <laughs> wow. I actually only had one lesson with Don Butterfield because he kept canceling all the others. Uh, but I ended up playing with him, actually, in Chris's concert band. So we were tuba buddies uh, for a while. Um, and I would learn just by being next to him and listen to him and play. Um, but, uh, that was, the, that was all the tuba studies. And then I guess it was either 12 or 14, somewhere around there. I studied, um, with Herb Buchanan, who was a, a crazy guy. I mean, he was an ace musician. He was funny. Uh, he had a brain the size of his, of a house. And I studied composition and theory with him. And uh, that was, you know, your mother would drive you to the private lessons and sit out in the car while uh, you were inside keeping warm. <laughs> I have a story about Herbie. Um, Herbie and I, just like John, have played together for many years. Herbie is no longer with us, but John can back me up on this. I mean, just Herbie, I think, had three doctoral degrees. Is that right, yeah. John? Yeah, I think so. Uh, one in theory, one in trumpet, and uh, musicology. Musicology, exactly. So many years ago when um, club dates were all the rage and we were all playing in different wedding bands and, um, you know, maybe like a 250 dates a year, it was astronomical. Yeah. But yep. a few times this one agency that John and I worked for, they would hire Herbie a number of times to play. And uh, John knows what I'm going to say. I know where you're going. <laughs> so I, I, I walk in and there's no, there's no piano player. It's just an instrumentalist. And I walk up and the instrumentalist had um, their instrument and um, a background track of just drums. I'm going, where's Herbie? And the person said, I don't know. He didn't show up. Herbie <laughs> would often get the date wrong, not show up. And there was no way of getting a hold of him. This is before cell phones. Oh, God. There was another time we're on a, uh, on a wedding. And it, was, it was just Herbie and I. So it was a, a ceremony, a wedding ceremony. And I'm playing flute. He's behind me. And I think I had like one bar or two bars rest. And he, he yells to me, give me your, your napkin. Do you have a, you know, a cocktail napkin? I'm going, okay, maybe he has a bloody <laughs> nose or something. So I made that mistake of giving it to him. He stops playing. He starts to write out five lines and four spaces and starts to write music. I said, what are you doing? 
you know, the bridal party is walking down the aisle. <laughs> you got to keep playing. No, no, I got this thing. Oh, my God. I just heard this in my head. I couldn't remember it. I just remembered it. And I'm doing a Shankarian analysis. Yeah. I, shortly after that, I couldn't hire him anymore. He was just too goofy. <laughs> it was just too much. I couldn't take it. <laughs> well, it, the, the one thing that sets out, sticks out in my mind about Herbie was one time it was a, a big band gig and he was playing piano. And Herbie was always late. And one guy always said, well, he had to squeeze his last lesson in there. And so no piano. It's like five of before the start. And Herbie finally shows up and uh, he can't get in. He, he There's no room for him to put the piano in. So he goes to the leader. Hey, hey man, I can't, I can't get the piano in there. And the leader was ticked off. The leader was actually Richie Burjax. And um, he goes, if you were here on time, you would you would have had some uh, you know you would have been able to get in your place. And, and Herbie goes, "It's not about time; it's about space." <laughs> That's right. It, I remember I was on that gig. I witnessed that whole thing. I couldn't believe yeah. it. <laughs> Gosh, oh man, that's why they call it the music business, right? Yeah, music jokes. <laughs> exactly. So how long did you practice your instruments? And maybe you were doing arranging at that time also when you uh, began to play, began to take music seriously? Oh, I never took music seriously. Oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> Not really. I mean, I'm just kind of floating along here and having a ball. Yeah, right. Um, when I was, there was one year I was doing summer music school. And I remember I watched a Laurel and Hardy movie, and you know the theme song for them was the Dance of the Cuckoos. And I said, "Wow, there's there's enough instruments at summer music school that could play that." So I sat down, and I had no idea what I was doing, but I was going to do it anyway. And I wanted to write it out for guys that I wanted to play at summer music school. And I didn't know what a score was at that point. I mean, I had seen scores on the conductor's uh, desk and all, everything, but I didn't know you wrote a score and then extracted parts. So I wrote out my idea of uh, Dance of the Cuckoos for, you know, it was probably flute, alto saxophone, tuba, uh, timpani, baritone horn, something like that. And I wrote individual parts out, like without referring to the other parts and uh, brought them in. And again, Chris Peterson was the teacher during uh, summer music school. And I, I said, could, could everybody play this? And he goes, yeah, sure. And I mean, I think I used a fountain pen to, to write the parts out and put the music on the stands and it came out okay. And Chris said, you know, might want to fix this, might want to fix that. And then he got the brilliant idea, you know, maybe you ought to be studying somewhere and figure out how to really do this stuff. So that's when I started with Herbie. Um, but yeah, I mean, you, I guess it's one of those things you just kind of fall into and, uh, somebody else has got to make sense of it for you. <laughs> Absolutely. And the great thing about Chris is he recognized your talents right away. And that was a pivotal moment. And you, uh, you know, took him up on that offer and imagine if you didn't, you would just you'd be playing some great instruments, but maybe not arranging. Yeah. Oh, Sure. So what musical artists were you inspired by early on? And are they the same artists that continue to inspire you today? I, I'd say probably some of them, you know, were early. You know, you, you live in a culture at a, at a certain 
point in time. And so everything around you influences you. And of course, in early 60s, the Beatles would, you know, come to the foreground and that was an influence. And then you get a little bit more, you know, you dig into it more and you find other things. And I remember hitting on Varese and um, Stravinsky, Beethoven, and then even later on, Gershwin, like, uh, you know, you, you just can't pass these people up. Uh, they're, they're what gives you a good foundation, you know? Oh, absolutely. For my listeners, if you could hear what John's saying, he's talking about the Beatles and then very, very, cla- you know, serious classical music. That's what makes a great arranger, a great conductor, a great musician, anything. It's, it all has to do with music. And you're getting inspired by many different things, not just one genre. Right, right. You, you got to do a cross section. Um, and the other thing, though, that that uh, also played into this later on was you can't continuously listen. You got to go off on your own at some point. You can't. I mean, you model yourself after somebody for a reason or maybe a project. But if you keep modeling, you, you don't find your own voice on this stuff. And uh, you have to stop listening to what other people are doing and go off on your own. Find, find your own way. Right. Or what they would say in music school, um, you have to follow the rules. And then one day they say, OK, we're going to break the rules. Yes. Go out on your own. Find your own sound. Yep. I mean, I, you know, again, with Herbie Buchanan, uh, I don't, I can't remember how long we spent with uh, Gratisad Parnassium, uh, the counterpoint book by Johann Josef Fuchs. Mm. I mean, that just went on for years. And then finally, you're done with the book and you go, oh, wow, I guess I did get something out of that instead of Ajita. <laughs> right. A lot of stress. You bet. So what was the pivotal moment that you knew that your sight reading skills were going to open doors for you in the music business? And I have to tell my listeners, uh, another thing that I think of when I hear John Hosley's name, just a brilliant, brilliant sight reader. I mean, you have to be a great sight reader to be a studio musician like the both of us are. But I've always sat back and admired other conductors, talk to John after he plays, and yeah, they'll comment on a whole note, on a half note, uh, the groove that he has within that note. Um, he was meant to do this. So what was that pivotal moment? There was a, t- a point when I wanted to improve my sight reading. I mean, I was always a pretty good sight reader, but I wanted, even in school, uh, we had a phenomenal band in middle school and I just had to rise to their level or else I was going to be far behind. But after I got out of uh, Manhattan, uh, I went for a year, a whole summer, up to the Catskills. And they had several different kinds of bands in each one of those resorts. Uh, they had the lounge band, which would do, you know, play pop tunes out at the uh, pool or dance music or whatever. And then they also had the show band. Now, the show band could be any size, depending on what resort you're at. It could be a full big band or an orchestra all the way down to, you know, just five or six pieces. But every night you had to sight read another 40 minute show uh, for the singer. It was always a comedian and a singer. And sometimes the comedian said music too. And you would not get a chance to play through this stuff. It was all talk through rehearsals. You sat down, put the music in front of you. And then the singer or the, the comedian would tell you what he wanted at what tempo. And that's all you got. 
and, and five minutes later, you were on stage and you had to read this stuff from beginning to end and make as few mistakes as possible. So I walked away out of the Catskills with uh, good sight reading chops. Now to further that, uh, we'll go to, to Tony Camillo, who's the first big producer that I worked for. He called me up one day and said, I hear you play bass. And I said, yeah. <laughs> and he goes, he goes, do you play well? And I said, yeah, I, I guess so. And he goes, good, as long as you didn't say no. <laughs> he said, I have a track that has to be fixed because there's a buzz on the bass track. Come on over. You got your bass? Come on over. So I did. And when I got in the studio, uh, he, he showed me, you know, to my seat, whatever. I was the only guy there because I was overdubbing, basically. And the, the track, the bass track had a buzz on it. So it, this had to be fixed. And I said, okay, uh, what do you want me to play? And he goes, oh, here, here's the music. And he put three music stands out, one, two, three, right next to each other, and opened up this chart that was eight pages long. And I went, oh, man, what, what's going to happen here? And he, he, and he gave me no preparation. He just said to the engineer, he said, roll the track. And I started playing it. I, I did fairly well, I guess, uh, because we only spent another 15 minutes on the thing and we were done and, you know, got released on a record and, you know, Ooh, boy, that's, that's cool. I like doing this, but that, that's how the sight reading thing went. His charts were always very difficult. Har har not only harmonically, well, harmonically, depending on what the tune was, but rhythmically, they were crazy difficult. And, uh, yeah, I mean, he, he brought me along full steam by that point. Tony Camillo was a tremendously respected Grammy award-winning record producer who wrote for and arranged for everyone from Gladys Knight and the Pips to Stevie Wonder to Frida Payne. Um, just insanely gifted musician. He played trumpet. He studied with Leonard Bernstein. He was one of the arrangers and writers at Motown, with um, the group of Holland Dozier Holland. Uh, and then he was one of the first people to come back to his state of New Jersey and open his own studio and had a full studio in his house. No one was doing that. It was, right, just yeah. unbelievable. And it sounds like your experience of meeting Tony was um, similar to mine. I'm at home one day and I get a call and it says, uh, Scott, yeah, uh, this is Tony Camillo. And, you know, we knew who Tony Camillo was, and I know of you working with him before I even met you. And I thought one of my friends was like, you know, pulling a gag. Yeah, sure, it's Tony. <laughs> said, no, 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 don't hang up. This is Tony Camillo. He said, uh, I've got a session for you. Uh, can you bring your tenor down? I said, sure, let me get my book. So I go to get my book, and I come back. I says, when do you need me? He says, now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, now? And I'm, you know, shaking in my my boots, and I'm going, oh God, I can't say no because I'll never get this opportunity. Right. So I'm driving there, and I'm nervous as heck. I get there, he meets me outside, and he he comes up to me. I don't know him. I've only heard of him. I never even seen pictures of him. He gives me a big <laughs> hug. Man, thanks so much for for you know coming here. I really appreciate it. One thing, when we walk in the studio, uh, we're gonna make believe. Okay, just follow my lead that you've been working with me for many years now. And, <laughs> <laughs> and you're my guy on the woodwinds. I said, okay. 
So we w- walk in, and there was a group there. He never told you who they were. Right. Same thing. He brings me into the, the studio, into the room, shows me the music. And as you said, everything was extremely difficult. Um, you know, and he knew exactly what he wanted. And he said, okay, we'll go from here to there, there, uh, play the track. This is what I'm looking for. Okay, great. And the guys in the booth are nodding their heads. So I guess they like what I was doing. So, okay, improvise over here. I'm looking for this style. All right. Great. So I improvised, closed my eyes. I opened my eyes. It was done. He comes in. He says, great. I'm going to be calling you, you know, I understand you play flute and clarinet and this and that. He says, I love the way you play. I'll be giving you a call. Right. That was it. It was like, wow. You know, it's. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, he was definitely tops. I mean, wouldn't you agree as an arranger looking at at his stuff? Oh, yeah. Um, We always we we always had this little rivalry going because, uh, I mean, Tony was a well-versed uh, composer and he he knew all the the correct classical uh you know uh, rules and regulations and everything and one day i'm sitting at the producer's desk with him and um the horns are playing uh out in the studio and and this horn section was the old uh saturday night live horn section lou delgado um uh what's the guy's name paul not ruben um yeah oh it, dave taylor um Lou Marini all of those guys so they're out there and they're going through the tracks and Tony's got the score on the desk and I'm I'm looking over his shoulder and everything and I I looked over his shoulder and they're playing and I I pointed down to the score and I go that's parallel fifths and he looks up at me he goes yeah but I like it in this kind of music yeah but he knew what he wanted he had great great ears you know he knew all the rules and then he could break them and he created his great sound. Unbelievable. So speaking about the studio, uh, you had a phenomenal rhythm section that you work with. If you could tell the listeners who those people were, I mean, I know who they are, but if you could just, you know, enlighten them. Uh, well, my favorite drummer in the world, Billy Blum was on, on drums, uh, for quite a while preceded by a guy named John Gates who was a really good drummer and an excellent vocalist. Uh, Bob Hamilton on keyboards, uh, a couple of different guitar players. Bob Feldman is the one that comes to mind right now. And uh, uh, Barry Miles was there uh, right along with us. We always had double keyboards uh, because at that time you needed a synthesizer uh, or a uh, Fender Rhodes sound plus an acoustic piano sound. So uh, Bob Hamilton played, you know, they switched off and on between acoustic and electric. Um, but that, those were, I was there for over 20 years. The other personnel, you know, came and went um, not all that often because we were really busy. I mean, at the height of all of this, we were in there four or five days a week. And we'd start at 10 o'clock in the morning and go to six o'clock at night. And the best part was uh, lunch. Because Tony, not only be, was he a great arranger and a great producer and everything, but he was a great cook. And he'd disappear in the middle of a chart once he knew everything was going fine. He'd go upstairs and he'd be cooking a huge Italian dinner. And uh, yeah, that was, that was a great experience. It'd get very heavy doing those sessions. It's funny when I tell people about these, you know, the experience of working with Tony, I would always mention the same thing. What a great cook. 
Yeah. And then he'd take you outside. He says, you see that pool, the underground yeah. pool? Yeah, I built that. Yep. He, right? He, he could do anything. He was just unbelievable. <laughs> he, he, didn't know how, he didn't know when to be afraid. Exactly. And, and I tell people this story, and I know you know this, because uh, he was always curious and loved people and loved to get talent out of people. Right. So he went back to school after he got his Ph.D. in music from Juilliard. Uh, he got his uh, degree in psychology. Now, that's something you told me like much later on. I didn't even know that. Oh, yeah. And yep. I asked him, I said, that's fascinating. How did you find time to do that? I made the time and I found that when I did that, um, I knew how to speak to someone that didn't know how to read music at all. To the person right. that has a master's degree in classical violin, you know right. how to speak to everyone on their terms and make everyone feel so comfortable, and then you can get the best product out of them. And I said, "Oh my God!" He, he he knew how to do that stuff. He was he was great at it, and that's something I never learned from him because I've had gigs where I was mu music supervisor or director or whatever that after a rehearsal. Uh, I especially was uh, doing a lot of uh, theater work. After the rehearsal, at night I get a phone call from the producer saying, John, you're scaring the actors. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know how to do that. I, I didn't learn that from him. I didn't catch on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Tony, Tony was born with that, and then he just you know perfected it. Uh, going back to the time before I joined you guys, and I know from the album credits that I've seen you play on, you were there with the Brecker brothers, Steve Gadd, Steve Kahn, but I know that you replaced uh, a great bass player by the name of Bob Babbitt. Uh, yep. Tell the listeners a little bit about Bob, where he came from, and how that all came to be. Bob was out at Motown at the same time that uh, Tony was out there, and Tony would take the guys, the, the Funk brothers, and try to get them into a different studio at, at off hours to do other tracks. And he really liked the way Bob played and everything. And Tony finally said, with the breaking up Motown, come east with me. And Bob, you know, he was, he would, didn't want to go out to uh, LA where they were moving Motown to. So he said, okay, fine. So Bob moved out to Bridgewater um, and uh, Tony's studio was in Somerville. So, I mean, there were stones throw away from each other. And uh, Tony was using him uh, Tony had recorded uh, Midnight Train to Georgia, and Bob was on the tracks, and Bob brought some other people in with him. Jim, uh, uh, boy, I'm going to re not remember all the names now. Well, Barry Miles was involved. Uh, Pat Rubolo, I yes, think. I think you're right. right. Um, who was on drums? Well, Gad was in on drums. Alan Schwartzberg was in on drums. Um, Jeff Mirnoff on, on the guitar, the Brecker brothers, Brecker brothers on horns and parts of, uh, the New York, uh, Philharmonic on, on strings. But, um, the rhythm section after midnight train, the Georgia and a couple other things, they started getting really, really busy. They became first call guys. And so Babbitt wasn't available, uh, all the time. And a lot of the other guys weren't available all the time. So Tony, just formed a new rhythm section. And um, like I said, my introduction to him was playing on a track that Babbitt had played on, but there was a buzz on the uh, on the bass track. So I came in and did that. 
And I did a few other things, and that was like my first album credits. And then by that time, Babbitt was just way too busy. He he couldn't even get a hold of him. Tony couldn't get a hold of him. Uh, he was doing Philly International, uh, just everything. I mean, he was like the number one guy on the East Coast for years at that point. So I slipped into the bass chair. Um, but I never met Babbitt. Uh, Bill Blum met Babbitt because Bill Blum taught uh, Babbitt's uh, kid drums. Mm, and, wow. you know, Billy to this day thinks, you know, I, I should, he keeps telling me I should have uh, nurtured that relationship a little bit better. But he, you know, he didn't know Babbitt that well at that point. But that's how I got in there was Babbitt got so busy, they needed a bass player. So I took that spot up. That's fantastic. And I was uh, fortunate enough to come in after the rhythm section was done with their stuff. So I would get there like a half hour, 45 minutes earlier. And I'd be in the booth with Tony and to watch you guys work was just phenomenal. I mean, who, I mean, everything John's talking about is uh, a thousand percent true. And they were all just great sight readers and they could feel what the other person was going to play a second before they played it. And they locked in. They had such synergy. So let's go to the other side of your brain, or it might be the same side, uh, your, your arranging and composing uh, side. So tell my listeners about uh, how you got to uh, over 200 published works and working alongside of the uh, arranging rates that we both knew, uh, Jerry Nowak and Bill Holcomb, because I know you worked at his publishing company. Well, I slipped into... Jerry, I didn't know all that well. I mean, I played with him a lot, but I, I didn't know him as a, an arranger to an arranger um, uh, relationship. But Bill, I started playing gigs uh, through another friend of ours, Paul Nagel, who's a, also a great arranger and great trumpet player. Yeah. Um, Paul knew Bill, and through that, uh, through Paul knowing me and Bill, I ended up on a lot of, of Bill's gigs because Bill was a, an excellent uh, saxophone flute player. Yes. And and then uh, eventually Bill heard some of my arrangements, and, and Bill had this uh, group, or actually it was a collection of groups, that he had a whole season down in Burlington in the uh, summertime where he performed for 10 Wednesdays in a row with 10 different kinds of bands. One week could be a big band. One week could be a concert band. One week could be a uh, brass quintet. Another week would be a, a woodwind quintet. Uh, so, and Bill was writing music for all of this stuff because he was filling in the holes. If it, you know, he said, you know, if we need an arrangement of uh, I don't know, hot cross buns, just whip it out, get it done. And you know, I, I, I did some of that stuff, and then I brought some of my own stuff. And uh, then Bill eventually asked me to do some of the lesson books that uh, he was putting together for uh, sort of a music minus one kind of deal. And, uh, but I, I did a lot of stuff with Bill. I learned a lot of stuff from Bill too. Bill was an eccentric. Now, a lot of people <laughs> didn't like him, but I loved the guy because he always had something interesting to say. And he was totally immersed all the time in, in what was going on around him, uh, uh, as far as all the arrangements went. I have a funny story. I mean, we all have funny stories about these guys, but one in particular stands out in my mind. I think you were probably on the gig also. It was a big band gig. So I'm sandwiched between uh, both Jerry and Bill in the saxophone section. And I'd say about 97% of his book was all their charts. 
but occasionally, you know, you flip to the next one and <laughs> they're on opposite ends of me and they would talk in front of me or in the back of my head. Oh, this guy, I hate the way he's, you know, does, you know, uh, <laughs> drop four here, you know, right. all the right. arranging terms that are so boring right now to the, some of the listeners, <laughs> but you know, it's like, why would he do that? I don't know. Why would he do that? And then I'm sweating because the very next chart is mine. Oh. <laughs> I'm going, okay, I can't wait for them to start critiquing me. <laughs> hey, you know, something like that happened to me once too. I was down the art center playing. And when I was 18 years old, I used to, um, uh, I did these arrangements for, oh, his, his last name was Tarantino. And he was the cousin of uh, Quentin Tarantino. Oh, what wow. was his first name? But anyway, he had me do a whole bunch of arrangements. And again, at 18 years old, I don't know what I'm really doing. And so I'm in the band playing bass and they pull up one of my charts and it was terrible. And, and the conductor at the end of the rehearsal of that particular chart, I even remember what it was. Uh, uh, it was one of the bread songs. Um, if right. Was that it? Yeah. And, um, the conductor goes, boy, what a piece of crap that was. And Chris, great. Piece, Chris Peterson is in the front row on saxophone. He turns around and looks at me. <laughs> he goes, you know, see, you didn't do, do, do well enough. But unfortunately, that was when I was 18 years old. And now I'm playing in this band when I'm, you know, like 29 or 30 years old. And I got all of these crap charts following me around. Let my listeners know about some of the iconic artists that you've worked with. And what was that like? You know, half the time when you were in the studio, you had no idea who you were playing for. It's not like you walked in there and it said, you know, uh, Gladys Knight and the Pips on the top of the chart. Everything was done so fast. There was no time for, you know, memorializing that stuff. It was you walked in, you played the charts and you went home. And, uh, you know, eventually you find out who you're playing for. And, it, of course, you know, Gladys was one. Um, I was in the studio physically uh, with uh, Tommy James, we did like one of his last singles that he had out. And that was a little bit interesting because um, Tommy, Tommy was a character. I think he's still living up in Montclair. Um, but he, he kept saying to me, I, I need a clacky sound. I need a clacky sound. Now, this is where, you know, sometimes you need a translation between a trained musician and a, and a layman musician and clacky. Sound. What's clacky? And then Tony walks in, he goes, he wants you to play with a pick. Oh, okay. Wow. And then he get, then Tommy says, that's not clacky enough. And I, and I was getting ticked off at this point. And I said, is this clacky enough? And I pulled out a quarter from my pocket and started playing the bass with a quarter. And he goes, that's it. That's it. Oh. So that ended up on the record, me playing the bass with a quarter. It was clacky enough. On Netflix last week, I just happened to watch uh, a documentary on Stunk, uh, Skunk Baxter. You know who he is. I mean, great, great musician who was with Silly Dan, one of the great studio musicians. And he would say, tell stories, you know, about almost the same thing. Like, guy comes in, he says, I want it more blue. Yeah. You, know, uh, you got it. <laughs> that's what he would do. Instead of saying, what? Oh, you got it. And yeah. he would just. Well, that was it. It was a whole mind game kind of a thing. Like, and you just had to make them feel comfortable, you know? Right. And yeah, I know what you're talking about. Blue. Well, you know, periwinkle. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, that's it. <laughs> and basically, he would go back to playing the same way, but because he was so confident, that goes, oh, man, I love working with you. Can you do the other three tracks? Sure. Yeah. yeah. And, and do them blue, too. Yeah, and I, my um, business card says that I specialize in blue and yellow. Yeah. So yep. I can right. do all that. <laughs> and I can horseshoe, too. <laughs> right, right. So what do you consider some of your greatest musical accomplishments? Actually, my son. Oh, yeah, he's a great musician. Yep. And I, and I really didn't do too much either. That's a, uh, that's a story in and of itself. Uh, he was, we had spare tubas at home, <laughs> which not too many families have. And so he's you know, little kid, like two years old, he's trying to blow on the tuba. And, you know, that's not working, of course. When he got into school, they gave him a baritone horn because, you know, little kids can't really play the tuba. They have to be tall to a certain degree. Uh, and then he went on to tuba. And then one day he comes home and he goes, Dad, I want to play uh, bass. And I said, okay. So I, I uh, went to the, what is it? Uh, what are those catalogs they keep sending around all the time? American music? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. Uh, or Z, Z, Z sounds and that kind of stuff. Uh, found a rogue bass. It was probably all in $99. But I figured, yeah, I'm going to pull the same thing my mother pulled on me. Yeah, you're going to quit it anyway, so why should I spend the money? Well, the, the bass shows up, and he goes, wow, you know, he's, his eyes are lighting up. I think it was a Christmas gift. And he goes, well, how do you play it? And I looked at him, and I said, E-A-D-G. Here it is. <laughs> that was it. He went off, and six months later, he came down and said, I need another bass. So I didn't teach him too much, but I think he was listening most of the time. <laughs> you taught him quite a lot. And I remember when you were playing bass on my studio album, The Color of Midnight, you said, can I bring Jake down? Sure, sure. So you said, do you mind if he plays on one track? And if you don't like it, then you can put me in. Sure. I remember the, I, the tune I remember specifically was Signed, Sealed, Delivered. And, and he sat down and he sight read the thing. And I'd say... 95% of it was dead on. I, I, he surprised me that on that uh, that uh, little foray into uh, studio musicianship. Yeah, he he well, he's he is a good player. Oh yeah. Period. He's, he's also he's also a good musician. He's got big ears, and um, you know, he, I guess he's he was raised in a musical family. At least my side, my wife's side. Not so much. <laughs> That's where the science comes from. My wife is a microbiologist and I'm the musician. So he's got quite a cross section going on there. But at this point, he's, a, he's an excellent bass player. And he doesn't play in the tuba as much as he used to, but uh, he's, he's a very good musician. Very, very good. Yes. And he was a great tuba player. I remember when he was in college. Yeah. Yeah. He got his master's in, uh, in performance on tuba up at uh, Hart. Let's talk about this new endeavor you have. Uh, John is the uh, band leader for a group that he friends call the Hotel Excelsior Orchestra that I've been a part of for a number of years now. We'll usually play concerts in, in the summer, but uh, I would like John to talk about this album that uh, we did this past year. And I know the inspiration came from uh, guitarist Django Reinhardt, but if you can tell everyone about this because... Um, I'm really proud to be, you know, have been asked to be featured on this album. And I thank you. And I, I think it came out great. Yeah, it did. 
Well, let's back up. That This band, the Hotel Excelsior Orchestra, started back in the 90s. And it was because I had an interest in music from the 20s and 30s and uh, was very fortunate in getting a library of all that music from the t- 20s and 30s. Um, and we played a bunch of gigs in the 90s, and then I, I let it go. Um, and then I kind of revived it again a couple of years ago in its same form with the uh, the bands at that time were usually two trumpets, trombone, three saxophones, and a rhythm section. Um, this time, though, COVID enters into the picture. So a year ago, year and a half ago now, I decided I was going to learn how to use the computer as a, as a recording studio. So I learned how to do DAW, Digital Audio Workshop. And then I said, well, now I need something to record. And I wasn't going to just sit here and play bass. So I went back and I uh, looked through all the music from the Hotel Excelsior Orchestra, the stuff we used to play, and uh, also decided to go the public domain route because I actually wanted to release something. So I found all these songs pre-1924 and did a bunch of arrangements. And I put down all the tracks and everything on the on the uh, computer. And I could, got a hold of you because I needed you as a... Uh, uh, the, the main soloist and the, you were, you were the uh, gravy. You were the, uh, with the cherry on top of the uh, ice cream sundae. I needed you for that. So you said, yeah, yeah, come, I'll be happy. So, I mean, not too many people were circulating in person, but it worked out great because you knew how to record and in your studio and send me the tracks. Uh, well, first I sent you the finished tracks you put your part on, you send the tracks back to me, and we mixed it all together, and it really came out well. And this was the first time I went into, like, uh, doing vocals, which I just just never got into. I, I would much rather play, play instrumental music, but, yeah, people like vocals. All right, so I all of a sudden learned, like, uh, lyrics mean something <laughs> and you can't just right. spit, a, spit a lyric out and have it make sense just on its own. You have to actually, you know, phrase, uh, you know, and go along with the, with the lyric is saying, but yeah, so we did this. It took us, well, I guess we started it last November Yes. and we released the, the album in October. So it took almost a year to get the whole thing done. Uh, but yeah, I, I'm real happy with it. I mean, let's put it this way. A lot of things that you start to do always take a left-hand turn and never turn out quite the way you envision them. But this, this was spot on. I mean, this is exactly the way I wanted it to sound and it's there. It was nailed. It was, it was great. Well, what was great is, I mean, the both of us had the channel uh, musicians that came way before us, you know, oh, yeah. you yep. know, people that played instruments, you know, early forms of these instruments in the 1920s. And, you know, you can't play a modern instrument in the same fashion. So you have to listen to those great artists that played back then. So I, I would talk to you a number of times. Okay, I'm channeling this guy, channeling that guy. I'll play this horn on here, uh, this mouthpiece. What do you think? And, <laughs> You know, it. I think it turned out great. So um, I'm playing clarinet and then some tracks I'm playing soprano sax. Could you, could you uh, talk about the, uh, the little spiel that you give at the live concerts about the fictitious town? Oh, okay. So again, the Hotel Excelsior Orchestra goes back to <laughs> the 90s. And 
some of that music, those arrangements, there were, there were stock arrangements basically. And so everybody's playing all the time. And I tried to figure out, I was a way that I could relieve the players, like give them like three or four minutes in between playing the charts so they could rest a little bit. So I came up with this idea of inventing a fictitious hotel in Ohio and it, it just kept on going. I mean, the Hotel Excelsior Orchestra is part of the Hotel Excelsior in a place called Flefton, Ohio. Now, Flefton is a town that has punctuation, but unlike Winston-Salem, which has a hyphen, uh, Flefton has a comma. So it's F-L-E-F comma T-O-N. And it just, it became more absurd from there. That, that was the jump off point. And I uh, developed a motto, fairly good music since 1883. <laughs> <laughs> so this band has been playing in the hotel for, you know, 100 and whatever years. Uh, but we primarily played, you know, 20s and 30s stuff. And I made up all these stories about the staff and about the uh, clientele that would come through. And I would lie, continuously lie about everything. And I would, we would do these concerts. And afterwards, you know, people would come up and say, I never heard of Flefton. What's it by? And I would, I'd say, oh, it's in Hamilton County, uh, Ohio, which it isn't. I mean, it doesn't exist. But I just continued to lie about everything. And, uh, yeah, the, I, I do it mostly because the guys in the band get a kick out of all these stupid stories I make up. And uh, when we do the shows, I'm standing there and I'm saying all this ridiculous stuff and the audience is going, duh, and the band is laughing. Oh, yeah. And eventually, eventually the audience catches on like, oh, yeah, this is a lie. This is just fiction. And they catch on and then they're happy once they're in on the joke. <laughs> in every interview that I'm doing, uh, the topic of, you know, humor comes up. You know, and I try and tell people it's just organic. All musicians use a lot of humor on, on yeah. bandstand. We're very serious. We get the job done, but there's right. just something about hanging out. You know, it's called a hang and just laughing, you know, and that's what it's about, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, if if people could only hear what people are saying up on the bandstand in whispers, in whispers, you know, right. <laughs> uh, and sometimes it's funny because the band leader, you know, who's introducing uh, tunes or, or uh, talking about a piece or everything, you know, they got to almost shut off what's going on behind them because it's usually hilarious and you just have to shut off the band and concentrate, you know, in front of you what the audience is supposed to be hearing. But yeah, the humor is there. The other thing that's unique about musicians, too, is that you can end a conversation with a guy. Uh, on a bandstand and say goodnight and not see him for 15 years you get on the next bandstand and he's there and you just continue the conversation <laughs> that's right exactly it, it, you know there's there's no stopping point you know and i think that has a lot to do with a musician's idea of time which is linear you can't stop it you can't speed it up it's there and it keeps on going forward um and that actually helps in everyday life too because you can't go backwards, you know, no sense in worrying about what happened yesterday. It's gone. That's right. And it's a great stress reliever, too. You know, you get on the bandstand, you know, we're all very proficient players and you're sight reading more than half of the stuff. But, you know, when someone does something like that, it's like, oh, OK, now I'm now I'm relaxed. I'm ready to go. It really, really does help. It also helps 
boy, I, I can't stress enough, like try and surround you, yourself with good players um, because that relieves stress immeasurably. Like for me, if I don't have a good drummer on the band, I, I'm stressed out. My shoulders go up to my ears and I get all tense. And for the you know, entire evening or concert, whatever it is, I'm just trying to, I'm trying to relax. I am not relaxed, but I keep trying to relax. Um, yeah, just keep trying to keep practicing so that you can move into the upper ranks. Exactly. And I think you and I are a little spoiled that way because we came out, out of the studios where you're yep. constantly with a, a metronome and, you know, playing on top of the beat, behind the beat, in front of the yep. beat. So then when you play live, unless it's a set group, you're like, oh, I, I can't overdub this. I got to deal with it now. <laughs> yeah. And it, sometimes it gets frustrating. But again, you know, all you got to th think think about is that, you know, in two hours, I don't have to deal with this anymore. Right. I'll be driving home. Yeah. So with all the things that you do, all your different talents, how would you label yourself in the music business? Do you see yourself as a bass player, a ranger, a ranger bass player, a composer now that you're singing? Uh, well, definitely not a singer. <laughs> but you do sound great. You really do. Well, that, that's almost like a, uh, an affected character that you have to take on. I mean, I sang all through high school. I was in all state choir and all that stuff and had all these operatic solos, but ah, it's, it's just foreign to me. I do not understand the human voice. I mean, I, I kind of know how to arrange for it, but I'll tell you in particular, the female human voice, I, I don't know how that works. <laughs> the best tip I ever got about writing for voices though, came from uh, the woman who was the head arranger for, um, Oh, one of the big corrals. I mean, they've released hundreds of records. I can't remember the name now. But anyway, she said, write vocal parts so that a good proficient professional musician could sight read it. Boy, you, you'd, be un, you'd be surprised what that does for your voice leading. It's incredible when you put it on that level. If you can sight sing it, it's right. Well, you know, it's funny. I mean, what you just told my listeners, I heard that from you. And that was a pivotal, great tool. And I remember after you told me that, I go, hmm, absolutely. Because yeah. when you think about the gigs that you you and I are on, if they're a big band or a concert band or whatever, yes, it's challenging stuff. But the ones that lay so well on the, the range of your instrument, yep. Uh, and the way it is so carefully written out, you know, user friendly, the, right. the gig happens. And it's like, wow, so yeah. there's a lot to be learned. But when you first start writing, you're like, oh, I could do better than that. You know, your ego you know, pops out, out of your skin. Yeah. And then you, you quickly find out, you know what, you have a lot to learn. <laughs> you know, and that's what, yeah. what happens when you're young. But you're exactly right. And that was one of the best tips I ever heard. So thank you for giving that to me. Yep. Uh, I wish I could remember the, the corral, uh, I, you know, somewhere in the area of Norman Luboff, that, that type of corral. And she was the, the chief arranger. And, and I, again, I can't even remember her name, but that, that was an invaluable tip. So let me ask you, what do you wish you had known when you started out in the music business? I wish there was a course at, Manhattan and all conservatories or any music school 
that told you what the business was going to be like. Mm -hmm. Because when you got out of there, well, even before that, I mean, I was playing when I was 16 years old. Uh, they didn't tell you what to be aware of, how to present yourself. It'd be nice for, for practicing musicians to be t uh, giving courses in music schools about what to expect. Do you remember how we met musically? Yeah, I do. You do? Uh, yeah, it was at Century Recording Studio. Ah, excellent. That's right. And it was in, it was in Sayreville. And I had been playing with a club date band, uh, you know, doing like Wednesday through Saturday nights or something. And the keyboard player in that band was a student of Bill Giant, who was a uh, uh, he was, he was a, an arranger. He did a lot of jingles and all that stuff. So they needed to do a demo for Jordash Jeans. That's right. And <laughs> yep. So and you you were the only person in the room that wasn't part of that group because you were doing the overdubs on Woodwinds, but you knew Bill Giant. So Bill had brought you in. And yeah, we did like uh, like three or four variations on a jingle like in one afternoon. Yeah. Yeah, I remember. Oh, that's so funny. And yeah, I remember that distinctly. And when I heard that you were going to be on the session, because I heard about you, I was, I came off the road, I was playing with a, a lounge band. People don't right. even know what that is anymore. But, <laughs> lounge. Yeah, lounge, yeah. You would lounge around. But, you know, be at a Holiday Inn or a, a Sheraton and you play six five or six nights a week, you know, four or five hours. In a jumpsuit. In a jumpsuit, exactly. <laughs> so um, one of the new Gladys Knight songs came out, and I think someone on the bandstand said, oh, yeah, um, I know this bass player that's a session player for Tony Camillo, uh, John Hosley, listen to him play. And I'm going, yeah, I've heard about this guy. I heard he's a great, great sight reader. He says, oh, yeah, he's scary good. So when I was in the studio... And I found that you were there. It was like, to me, it was very intimidating. I'm like, oh, my <laughs> God. So I'm in the booth listening to you guys play, you know, the rhythm section. First, I'm going, oh, my God, this is incredible. You know, th this is a real studio guy. This is phenomenal. So, you know, it ended up that's how we, we, we met and played. And then years later, it was just, oh, my God, now we're working together on a, a, a you know, a behind one of these artists or in the studio. Right. Uh, it's just phenomenal. But to fill people in on Bill Giant, um, his real name, uh, Bill Giant was his pen name, his surname, as they call it, uh, Bill Zimmerman. And uh, I met him through his daughter, uh, his daughter, Lori Zimmerman, because we both went to the same high school in old old bridge right yeah and it's not even called the same high school anymore it has a different name but uh we are in this uh, same theory class geez you had theory in high school isn't that weird wow yeah. lucky you yeah yeah so uh uh that's another story in itself but at the end of the class she comes over to me she says you know my dad's in the music business um are are you thinking of majoring in music when you get out i says oh absolutely she says, I would love for my dad to meet you. I says, really? Yeah, what's he do? Well, he's, um, he's a songwriter. And I'm thinking, <laughs> how, does, how does anyone make money um, being a songwriter? And I said, well, who's he write for? Um, did you ever hear of Elvis Presley? And I'm going, oh, my God. Are you kidding? Yeah, he, he wrote a lot of the movie hits. And he writes for this. He writes for that. Um, he has a couple of jingles out right now. Right. I said, oh, my God, this is the real deal. 
Yeah. So one of the one of the days of that week, um, she says, Scott, come on over. My dad's here. I want you to meet him. Right. So she brings him over and he was so tall. Maybe that's why his name was Bill Giant. He was tall. Oh my God. And he says, oh, so you want to major in music? Great. What do you want to do? I said, well, I want to be a recording studio musician. I want to arrange. Great. Stand over there. Let me check out your ears. So he right. starts to play things on the piano. What's this chord? What's that note? What's this? Right. And he says, he says damn. Yeah, Laura was right. I heard you have perfect pitch. Right. I said, is that bad? And he started laughing. <laughs> yeah, right. You yeah. don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I didn't know. And I, I, I laughed. And he laughed. He says, um, what are you doing Saturday? I said, what do you mean? He said, I want you to come to the studio with me. Um, I want you to, you know, sit in the booth and, you know, I want you to become the gopher. I said, right. gopher? What do you mean? Well, you'll go for, you know, a corned beef. You'll go for Cokes. You know, you'll get the guys, all the stuff. And in return, you'll get to sit there and see the best musicians in New York play on these jingles and you know, record days. I'm going, Oh my God, my jaw was hanging open. I couldn't believe it. So, uh, oh wow! I mean, what what an experience! And he was absolutely so key to my life, a pivotal person in my life. I went to Berkeley, and then when I was there, he says, "Okay, uh, give me a call before the end of the semester. Tell me how you're doing. What courses are you taking? What arranging courses are you doing? Take this, take this, take this." And he right. says, "And when you graduate, when you come out of Berkeley." Uh, I, I want you to work for me. And I'm thinking, yeah, right. <laughs> he was a man of his word. Really? Yeah, yeah. I came out. I was on the road. I came off the road. I called him up. He says, yep, come on down. So I, I came down to see him. And he says, okay, are you ready? I says, yeah, sure. He says, okay, uh, you're going to be a ghostwriter for me. I said, what's that? You know, we're so young and stupid. And I'm going, okay. So he says, I have another uh, big jingle that I'm writing, but they want three different versions. And I'm going to give you this very hip, you know, today's sound version, you know. Right. So, okay. So he said, I'll score it out, you know, map it out. And then I want you to write it in this type of style. Right. Now, back then, you and I know there was no digital recording. There was no <laughs> music notation software where you could play it back. He's Okay. When you're done, come see me. I need it by Wednesday or whatever it was. Right. I go to see him. He looks at the score. He's smiling. He says, is it correct? I says, yes. Are you sure? <laughs> yes. I says. Because they're going to play what you put on the paper. So I said, well, I can come with you. He says, no. Unfortunately, no. They're not supposed to know who you are. Plus, I'm, plus I'm flying to England, you know, because that's where the ad agency is. Right. Okay, and I'm going to conduct it. And when I come back, I'll give you a call and I'll say, come on over. <laughs> and that's what happened. So he calls me when he came back the next week. He says, come on over. It's done. And I was like, oh, God, what is he going to tell me that I screwed it up? Was it okay? So I'll never forget. I can still see it in my head. I got out of the car. I walked up his driveway and I hear this music blaring. And being young and dumb, I'm going, geez, that sounds like something I would write. <laughs> yeah. Right. Oh, I know the experience. Right. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I get to the door. I knock on the door. He opens it. And he's got this big smile. He says, that's you. You did that. 
He gives me a big hug. You did that. He says, that was you. And I started to ball like a baby. I was like, <laughs> because, you know, the London Philharmonic musicians yep. were playing this. And it was like, oh, my God. So, okay, I've got other projects. I want you to ghostwrite this. I want you to do this. I have a session for you. I was on cloud nine. I, I couldn't sure. believe it. So that was a pivotal moment for me. I mean, you know, it, it's funny that you mentioned the London Philharmonic because I had exactly the same experience. I was ghostwriting for Bill Holcomb, and he was doing a, a library for a German uh, sci-fi television cartoon. And he had to do, you know, like 30 minutes worth of music that had to be done within three weeks. And so he had to have, have ghostwriters. And Paul Nagel was a ghostwriter. I was a ghostwriter. And, yeah, you're right. Like, all of a sudden somebody's playing it on a cassette, if you know what a cassette is, <laughs> right. and, and you're going, boy, that really sounds familiar. Like, I know where all the notes are going. I know the, you know, the chord um, um, chords that are coming up and everything. And then you realize, yeah, you did that. And they're playing back your stuff. It's the same experience. Yeah, yeah. Well, you, you know too much about it and you don't know why. So let me ask you, what advice could you share with someone that's listening to you right now that's probably inspired by you, by all these fascinating things you're sharing, possibly thinking about doing the same thing? Uh, you know, I don't know where studio musicians are going these days. I, I don't know. Do they even exist? It's all in the home. So that's a rough thing. I mean, go knock on doors. Go trick-or-treating and knock on doors and see if they have a recording <laughs> studio. Right. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't know what to do. I mean... You know, maybe you fall in with somebody who's writing stuff and needs an instrument on their track that they can't play. That That's the other problem, too. Everybody thinks they can play everything, you know, and and what they can't play, they'll go find a sample of somewhere and, you know, put that on the tracks. It's a it's a well, the whole idea of being taught what the business was about still pertains today, but it might even be rougher today to be in the music business. That's right. Um, yeah, I don't know what to say. You know, if if you got to do it, you got to do it. So go to school, you know, put your time in, excel as, as much as you can. But where you go from that point, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm not I'm not in that world. I don't know. I don't know what to do with it. I know that I, I can I can entertain myself and make money by sitting in my basement and writing. And, you know, kind of goes out worldwide which is really cool i mean in the old days you would write something and maybe it had you know 500 schools playing your uh, arrangements nowadays if you get onto some of these sites and submit your music it's worldwide and that's very exciting but you know uh, that wears off <laughs> after a while too I, i'm looking right now I'm, I'm looking at a map of the world that a couple of years ago i started putting uh, stick pins in uh of all the places that I sold music and like, you know, I can't fit another pin in Europe or in the United States or Australia, which is cool. That's successful. That's phenomenal. Well, that's just a lot of stick pins is what it is. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I, you know what, you have to make your own uh, niche in the world. And, you know, a lot of people always come to the fore. I mean, like, Look at somebody like like Billie Eilish. Uh, she was nowhere, but she started. And, and who's the other guy uh, from Canada? Um, 
Justin Bieber. They had no, they didn't have the outlets that I had, right? You know, 40 years before, but they found a way to do it. And now they're very successful at what they do. And, you know, sometimes it, it goes through YouTube, uh, TikTok, you know, any of those platforms, but you got to have something unique. Uh, you know, people don't, well, I, I want to say people don't want to hear the same thing over and over again, but man, I'm getting sick to death of one, five, six, four, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yep. yep. But I, I guess maybe if you have a unique voice or you have a unique per perspective on lyrics or something like that, you got to make your own way. Nobody's going to, nobody's going to give it to you. Nobody's even going to show you the signposts at this point. You got to, you got to do it for yourself. That's right. I mean, that might sound disappointing and defeatist and everything, but man, that's, that's what everybody did. Uh, you can go back into the classical era. You know, Bach got his position at the church and wailed. And that's what you got to do too now. Very well put. I love that. Can you um, tell everybody how they could find the uh, Hotel Excelsior Orchestra album and the title of the album? Because I know it's on different social media platforms. Uh, it's on just about every streaming service, uh, including like iTunes, Spotify. It even shows up on YouTube um, and all the all the other places too. Um, and all you do, all you have to do is a search at Hotel Excelsior Orchestra. Um, there's no other group called that, although there are a couple of other like Hotel Excelsior, uh, I guess actual hotels, <laughs> but they're not in Fleston, Ohio, so. <laughs> you got to find that one. Um, and the name of the album is One, Two, You Know What to Do, which I guess is like an old jazz joke, like when you're counting a tune of one, two, you know what to do. And bang, you're into it. Um, and it's just full of uh, a lot of pop tunes from the 20s that I've always liked. Uh, some of them you might not be familiar with, but... Uh, they're done in the style of the 1920s. I mean, they're on modern instruments and modern recording techniques and everything, but you know, uh, the grooves are definitely 1920 grooves. You know, uh, they don't sound like, uh, you know, uh, modern day grooves at all. And, and that's important. Like if you're going to be a musician, you better know all the grooves and all the styles. Uh, Cause you're going to be called on to, if you get to the point you want to be at, you're going to be called on, to replicate all different styles and be as authentic as possible with it. Well, listen, John, I had a great time interviewing you. Are you going to go out now and order up a uh, um, cookie dough uh, gin and tonic? <laughs> Scott, Scott has this hab habit. When we go out and hang, he o orders these drinks that have like cookies in them and gumdrops. <laughs> and, oh, man, love to tease you about that. The funniest night I ever spent with you was with you and your wife. We're in the diner and we're going back and forth and we're making her laugh so hard that she fell off her chair. Right. <laughs> we kept saying, are you all right? And she kept saying yes. But yeah, but she kept laughing. Yeah, right. Sorry, Liz. <laughs> all right. Well, I had to get that stuff in because there was no way I could go home without it. Well, thanks for behaving yourself until the very end, but, <laughs> you know, we do like funny stories here, so I guess I have to keep it in. <laughs> and Liz will appreciate it, too, I'm sure. All right, John, thanks so much. It was such a pleasure, 
And uh, I'm sure the listeners have learned quite a lot from you. And, uh, you know, it's all lies. It's it, lies. It, it, right. It's like the band that you lead, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. Thank you, Scott. Have a great day. I'll see you soon. Bye bye. Thanks so much for joining me on today's show. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and could hear why my guest got chops. Please spread the word to your family and friends about my podcast. And if you would like to discuss got chops in between episodes, you can reach me on Instagram at got chops podcast and on Twitter at Grimaldi music. I can also be reached on Facebook, Scott Grimaldi, the color of midnight. My website is grimaldimusic.com. And the address for this podcast is anchor.fm slash gotchops. Before I conclude with today's show, I'd like to share a catchphrase of mine that you'll probably hear me say quite often, for I truly believe it sums up what every artist has in common in order to achieve their chops. And it goes like this. It's not my way, it's the way it is. Join me on the next episode when we discover why my next guest got chops.